their dreams come true. You can, you came, you can. Okay, so it's not quite Vini Vidi Vici, but the parallels are there. All right, it's not that big of a stretch because UConn conquered the college basketball universe as they bulldozed and bludgeoned their way through the NCAA tournament like few teams had ever done before. Hello again, everyone. I'm Brian DeNovellis. Thanks for downloading and listening to the Tri-State College Basketball Podcast. You know, as I continue to grow this brand and, and show in the Tri-State, I just want to thank you for your loyalty and your listenership. Uh, those of you that have been there from the beginning and those of you that are new, please, uh, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast with friends and write a review wherever you listen to this podcast. So, as we celebrate UConn and applaud what Dan Hurley and company have accomplished, a fifth national title in men's basketball. That ties them with Duke and Indiana. Only North Carolina with six, Kentucky with eight, and UCLA with 11 have won more. But let's face it, since the face of this NCAA tournament, as we know it, since seedings began, since it expanded, to 64 teams, and then to 68. It's really UConn, North Carolina, and Duke in that realm that have won these championships in modern day. Can you say blue blood? Well, we're going to talk about UConn and what they've accomplished and whether or not they are blue blood, because they are. And we're going to do it right now. Let's bring back a friend to the podcast. Someone I've had the pleasure of knowing and working with going back to our days together at ESPN. He's affectionately known as the governor, Bill Raftery. Raft, you know, thanks so much for coming on. I know you're busy this Easter weekend uh, and you're coming off the final four, but thank you for taking time to come on the podcast. Good to talk to you. No problem, Brian. How you doing? I'm doing excellent. Uh, getting ready to go up to Connecticut for Easter and Spend it with my mom. Uh, how about you? Uh, we got Christy and her gang here. We had Susie and her gang last week. So we're doing okay, you know? Fantastic. And, and you know, listen, you've been on the road a lot, Raft, and, and uh, enjoying so much college basketball. I, I want to talk about UConn and how impressive it was. You know, they always talk about, you know, it's not how you start, but how you finish. But, boy, I mean, this team started strong and they finished stronger mm -hmm. what impressed you about this team uh i think they handled the highs and lows pretty well um uh, you know i think danny did a great job of a sideline i hate to use the word behavior but just <laughs> coaching uh you know i think he just realized like he had a stacked deck uh, back up at every spot and just enjoyed the ride uh i always felt he was an extraordinary coach no matter where he was I didn't see him at Benedict's, but heard about him. But I did see him at Wagner in Rhode Island. And uh, none of what he does in terms of execution surprised me. But j just the overall uh, handling of maybe what you might call adverse situations during the course of the year, uh, you know, whether it's an injury or uh, an injury illness, uh, somebody not playing well, uh, not being afraid to take somebody out in the middle of a game who's an A player that, is performing up to snuff. So uh, I, I just, 
you know, from Portland early in the year and having a couple of games where they went south uh, to not, you know, losing uh, you know, losing the players basically, really, and getting them to just keep working hard has uh, just been extraordinary. So much of coaching is is I think it was PJ who said it to our good friend Jose Rabimbus. You know, when Jose asked him, "Hey, what's the what's the secret of being a, a good coach?" PJ said, "Recruit better players than the other guy." But let's face it. That, well, in PJ's case, not using bad language could be fit in there too, you know. <laughs> and and Danny has learned to not use bad language. Let's face it, right? Uh, so so you factor that in. It's it's a, one thing to get them in, but then you have to coach them all. Then you have to have them gel. Then you have to manage them. I mean, you know, and then do the X's and O's when yeah. when it comes time to crunch time. I, would you say Danny has has pretty much learned how to do it all? I, I don't think he's learned. I think he knew. Mm. Uh, I mean, he did this without a true point guard, which was pretty impressive. Uh, you know, he got Tristan to really buy in and and not take away his offensive game either. Uh, you know, Hawkins is strictly a two guard, <clears throat> and uh, you know, backup Celine is more of a two guard. Uh, the arrow really known for his defense. So, you know, he did this by ball movement, a lot of action. Um, you know, obviously Sunoco being such a great screener and roller, uh, you know, he, he utilized the talents of each player, uh, which is, which is basically your job, but he did it to a level that was obviously very impressive and garnered that championship. And in this day and age with, with NIL, I mean, he revamped that roster, Raph, you know, he kept, he knew he had his, his big three per se, right. Uh, of Sonogo Hawkins and Andre Jackson. And he lost some valuable pieces with Whaley and um, RJ Cole, right. And Polly. And he mm -hmm. brought in four transfers and two prominent freshmen who played significant roles. One of which started, this is the day and age that we live in. Raft, uh, you know, what can you say about the job that he did putting it all together in one season with these new faces? Well, I, I don't think you have any choice anymore. Uh, you know, that's the way of the world, the basketball world. Uh, you know, the, the kid Clinton, uh, you know, forgetting how, not discounting, I should say, how well he plays and played. Uh, to have that kid only play some nights, 10 minutes, maybe average 13 for the year and buying in and being enthusiastic. Uh, it takes, it's an art in itself. And, uh, you know, this kid's going to be an NBA player. I mean, everybody goes to their games. Uh, he's A, Hawkins might be B, uh, Sano goes C and Hawkins D in terms of uh, their prospects for the future. So uh, to get a kid like that, just willing to learn, play Sunoco every day and, and learn how to, uh, you know, deal with the adversities of everyday practice and demands and all those things. I think he did an extraordinary job totally, but in particular with Klingon. How about Sonogo? Um, you know, we're kind of seeing the resurgence of low post big men. Zach Eady being national player of the year, Sonogo, right? I mean, so many seven footers going outside Holmgren last year from Gonzaga, you know, these seven footer shooting threes. I know Sonogo hit a couple of threes in the semifinal, mm -hmm. but let's face it; these are these are throwbacks. I, I, is it safe to say that that there's a place in the game for the low post big men, and the death of their game is greatly exaggerated? 
Well, I mean, all this analytical action that coaches talk about, uh, you know, let, let's give them hard twos and take away the threes. Uh, I still think there's a mixed bag in games. Good teams have both. Uh, you know, you're right. When you watch Danny's practice, he lets Sonogo and Klingon do all the things the guards do. Uh, you know, whether it's the 17-footer or back behind the three-point line. So uh, in terms of a future, uh, he, he's helping them. Now, in a game, it doesn't fit as much, obviously, with the talents they have around those two big kids in particular. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the game, uh, you know, guys, you want to win, and the best way to win with guys like Zach Eady is not to have shooting threes. And I think that's pretty much with Sonogo. Uh, but uh, practicing it, in fact, uh, Edie during the year, uh, the one thing he kept asking, Matt, let me take a three during the game. <laughs> I don't think he took one uh, for the whole year. But uh, no, I, I think in terms of professional development, bigs now traditionally have to have an outside shot. And I think that's why Danny lets those two big kids practice it, uh, you know, as well as the little guys. So, uh, But I, I still think you need some stuff inside. You get to the foul line. Uh, you stop the clock. Uh, I mean, just so many things are important by by getting a low post game and causing problems for the other big who might be a three-point shooter. Uh, so you take that factor away as well. We heard so much about, you know, UConn's depth and and obviously playing a big role and, you know, guys being able to come in and, and know their role and, and perform it well, whether they're starting or coming off the bench. But... Danny at his grassroots has always been a defensive first guy. Learned that from some of the best, obviously his dad, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in high school and PJ was a very good defensive coach as well. Uh, did their defense not get enough credit? Well, I think it's easily, easily overlooked. I mean, the average guy could care less about defense. <laughs> uh, you know, they just go to see who scores and who played well, but uh his his mantra has always been defense and rebound, and I and I think you add this talented array of people that can score. Uh, you know, maybe not quite the numbers that he would have liked in the final, but enough to, you know, preserve a win. Uh, but I but I think that, it, it, you know, if you go to his practice, their breakdowns are as good as any as to what the opponent is doing and how to take it away and. Uh, so it's all in the prep. So nothing, nothing's really changed, I, I don't think. But uh, they're a pretty team on offense. And sometimes you overlook how good they are on the defensive end. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And how about rebounding, Raft? Is that sometimes I think it's a lost art. And I watch a lot of games just like you do. And it's amazing when all, you know, you have your ball handler and basically the the, the four players around the perimeter, ball goes up. Nobody crashes the boards. Guys stay on the outside. But yet, UConn, you know they're going to crash the boards. You know they're going to put three guys in there. And you'd think more teams would do it to keep offensive possessions alive, to get second-chance points. But it's mind-boggling to me how many teams don't do it. Do you feel the same way? Not really. Uh, most teams don't have those weapons. Okay. Uh, you know, you got to peel back if you're a small team. That's why San Diego State, you know, tries to control the tempo of the game because they don't have those type of guys. So I think it, it, guys do it when they have the proper talent or uh, the guys that can execute that particular thing uh, and can read it. 
you know, Houston's a good example of guys crashing the board and still protecting the backcourt. Um, they're, they're just magnificent in that particular area. But it's a fine line, and, and, but it, I think it's all predicated not as much on philosophy as much as on who you have playing. Excellent point. You got to know your personnel and play to their strengths. So you've known Danny probably since, you know, he was running around the, the playgrounds of, of Jersey City and following pretty much Dad and Bobby's footsteps. Uh, his his story has been so well documented, um, you know, taking a leave of absence from basketball and leaving the game for a year and coming back from depression um, to see him grow into the, the coach and recover from that. Um, it, it's an amazing accomplishment and rise to where he is today. What do you think of his story? And, and well, I love his story. And, and I, I don't think enough credit was given to Seton Hall, to be honest with you. Uh, he, in his private sessions with us, you know, would talk about uh, the, the nun at Seton Hall and uh, the band. I'm sure it's Robin Cunningham, but the support, uh, George Blaney, uh, and I'm sure a multitude of other people. Uh, and he would get very emotional about without them, he would not be where he was or became, you know, where he got to, I should say. Uh, and I think where he got to uh, is on the precipice of being one of the great coaches, really. It's not by that. He is a great coach. But in terms of national recognition, a couple of more of these things. And, uh, you know, people are going to say, oh, my goodness, where did this all start? And quite frankly, it did start at home uh, with his dad and Bobby. Uh, but without Seton Hall's support uh, and, and him realizing what he could do, what he could accomplish, and, and really uh, reinvigorating his confidence, I think, as a player. And as a player, sometimes it, the impact with you as a person. And, and I just think what the, the foundation at the Hall uh, enabled him to do what he's been able to accomplish. Yeah, you need that support staff. You need the, like you said, George Blaney was the the right guy at the right time replacing uh, PJ and and you know he gave him uh, life again and got mm -hmm. him back on his feet and and Danny did the rest. Um, I guess a couple more championships, at least one more, would put him in you know special place. Uh, doing it at a place like UConn that Calhoun built, um, they've always been a nice program, Coach. But I, I think we have to call them a blue blood. You know, I don't know why there's even a debate. And, and well, you know, what they've done in the last 23 years is nothing short of amazing. No, you're right. It's just, uh, again, uh, a lot of people at West call it Eastern bias when uh, certain teams are picked or selected. And and I think there's a reason where people back in the East uh, should be proud, obviously. Uh, I can remember Kevin Willard didn't want UConn coming into the Big East. That's right. For, for the very reason that transpired this weekend, or this past weekend, I should say. So, uh, yeah, I mean, what, what you, now Dom Perno, who, who you might, you were yeah. too young probably, but Dom, no, no, Dom had some good years, but Jimmy just took it to another level, uh, Calhoun. I mean, he, he, because of his stature, uh, the chip on the shoulder kind of an attitude, he was going to do it. He was going to prove to the country that it could be done. You know, of course, he followed by Kevin Ollie. And then I think the uh, the lack of rivalries in, in the American Conference, mm. sort of every, they disappeared from viewing, really, in the East as well. Um, it just 
it just wasn't the Providence or the Yukon, or excuse me, the Providence or the uh, Creighton or whomever, uh, Seton Hall, uh, Villanova. There wasn't the juice that those teams provide to kids who were raised, born and raised pretty much on the East Coast. So, uh, you know, they, they've Villanova had the uh, league on its shoulder, and now, you know, in a way, Connecticut has sort of taken the next step where there's national recognition for this conference, which on a daily basis, they had five losses in the Big East. I mean, it's incredible when you think of it. Um, and yet they were able to run the table against some of the best teams in the country during the tournament. That's right. 17 and <laughs> Excuse me. every one of their losses, like you said, was in the Big East. Uh, Coach, two more questions from me. You know, on a personal note, uh, you know, working with Jim Nance, and and being there for his his last Final Four, you know, you've worked with so many great names over the years, right? From from uh, you know Tim Brando and 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 on up. What was it like being there for for Jim Nance? Uh, you know, having 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 done his first game with him when he came to CBS in '85 or '6, and having done the first studio show with him mm. that he ever did, uh, we developed a friendship that. You know, despite not seeing him, well, I would see him, obviously, but not working with him as his career progressed. And, uh, you know, he did work with Billy Packer 18 years and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, it was all, you know, Grant and I were, were so proud to be a part of it. You know, his coattails were taking us along. And uh, knowing him and how much he loved the tournament, uh, this impact was incredible. Uh, the, the semifinal when they on the board flashed all his big calls and 70,000 people cheered and he was like shocked and I said to him stand up no yeah. and stand up and I said then I had a point to him I said look there and he realized that they were cheering on one side the baseline and behind them and uh that really set him off a little bit that oh my god like it was pretty touching for all of us uh to be a part of it uh you know the there's something the, the substance that makes him uh is really impressive he loves the kids loves that tournament and uh you know again uh, the emotions crept in and then going off the air it was pretty touching uh to hear him uh you know choke up and uh, realize that god this has been a great ride. I loved it. And uh, he wasn't thinking this, but we were. But what a job. The historian of the NCAA in modern times. Oh, yeah. No, and and what what a treat to have you there with him. You know, hello, friends. We we, we Those, those <laughs> two words are, you know, so simple, yet they're embedded in our heads. So Ian Eagle will take over for him next year and call the Final Four. That's a dear friend of yours yours as well. You, I mean, how many games did you call with the Nets all those years? Will well, you we're, we're trying to figure yeah. out. It's probably bordering on 500, oh. you know, eight or nine years, and at, at the minimum, uh, 50, 50 a year. Uh, that's, uh, so that, that's a lot of games, obviously. But, uh, Will you, be you with know, him? the quality that he brings is just, uh, you, you know, it, it, He's a lifer, uh, great sense of humor, as you know, and uh, loves the game as well. Still doing the net, still doing NBA TV. Uh, and the, what I love the most about Bird is that this thing, 
you know, they they told him he didn't ask that. Uh, mm. And so he didn't covet the job. He just went out and did his job with whatever sport he happened to be assigned to. And uh, it's, it's fitting that he gets this opportunity. No question. Uh, for my money, uh, he, he is my favorite broadcaster. And I look forward to those games next year as well. Coach, it's been a pleasure. You know, thank you for the time. Happy Easter to you and your family. And we'll talk to you very soon. You as well, Brian. Take care. Enjoy your day. Thank you. Bye-bye. There he is, Bill Raftery, the governor, the kiss. We know all those words. Onions, double order, right? They're just iconic calls that only Bill Raftery could have coined. And um, I really appreciate him coming on and, and sharing his thoughts because uh, he has known Danny, like I said, since his days running around chasing basketballs for Bob Hurley and and being a Jersey guy, coming from Jersey City, having that attitude, having that chip on his shoulder. I don't know if any other coach could have done it at UConn uh, and built it back up the way Dan Hurley has. But Bill Raftery, I look forward to seeing him and hopefully Ian Eagle paired up again next year. Notice he didn't officially say they're a team, but I can't imagine Ian Eagle not being paired up with Bill Raftery once again, those two have so much chemistry. So that will put a wrap on this college basketball season. UConn raises their fifth national championship banner and now begins the offseason, the NIL season, the transfer portal season. We will have more podcasts for you right here on the Tri-State College Basketball Podcast. Just because the season is complete, the off-season is here, and as long as there is news, we will talk about it right here on the Tri-State College Basketball Podcast into the spring and into the summer. Thank you for listening, as always. We'll talk to you very soon. Happy Easter. Happy Passover. My name is Brian Dinovellis. We'll see you next time.